2: This is
3: the Tom Hartman Program.
4: And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Is it party time or does the hard work begin now? Congressman Roe Connor is with us, uh, represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. He's vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Connor, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A.house.gov is his uh, website. His Twitter handle is Rep Ro R O Kana, K-H-A-N-N-A, and Congressman, welcome back to the program. So you guys, congratulations. You passed Build Back Better out of the House and goes to the Senate. Where are we at? Where does this go? What are your thoughts on it? And is there anything else you wanted to, to talk about before we start picking up phone calls?
1: Well, Tom, i late. It seems like I'm coming on every time we have these important votes. I think last uh, time I was on, uh, it was also one of these important votes. So That's great. It was a huge, uh, huge achievement. We got everyone in our caucus to vote for the president's Build Back Better bill. uh, Universal preschool for the first time in this country's history. Uh, It's going to have the biggest investments in climate that we've ever made, over $550 billion. Uh, Child care, no family is going to have to pay more than 7% uh, in child care. Uh, And it passed uh, with all Democrats except one and not a single Republican uh, vote. So now it goes to the Senate. I am confident that the president's framework, which basically passed the House, uh, will be accepted l- largely uh, unscathed in uh, the Senate, but obviously we're going to be vigilant and making sure that it doesn't get diluted, and then it comes back to us and goes to the president's desk. Wow.
4: So It's, it's, it's going to go through reconciliation, or not reconciliation. Uh, yeah, is it, what's the process where, you know, the Senate modifies yeah. the bill and it comes back to you guys, uh, it's called conference, conference committee? Conference, yeah, thank
1: you. conference committee, yeah. But, you know, I mean, what the president did, I thought, which was a tremendous leadership, is he basically pre-conferenced it with his framework. And mm-hmm. people said, well, how are you going to ensure that people are going to vote for it? Well, he's done 50%. He showed it worked. I mean, his framework had the votes of uh, everyone in the House but one. Uh, and he's confident that the framework will have the votes of uh, all of the uh, 50 senators plus uh, Vice President Harris. So uh, we need to make sure, particularly on climate, that it doesn't get diluted. Uh, and that uh, we don't have further cuts, uh, but I I am confident that uh, people should vote for the president's compromise framework, uh, which he had private assurances from everyone uh, that they would support.
4: Yeah, that's absolutely spectacular. Uh, before we pick up phone calls, anything else you wanted to highlight or flag or make sure it doesn't you know slide by during the course of this hour?
1: I just want to say one thing on the cost. You know, people keep throwing out this one point seven five trillion. Just to put it in context, that is less than $200 billion a year, because it's over 10 years. And our defense budget is about $750 billion a year. So it's one-third of what we're spending on defense, which is over 50% of the discretionary budget. And by the way, the spending is less than 1% of our GDP. So we should say we're getting a lot for actually not much money, as opposed to this media narrative that's been created that somehow they're spending all this money. Yeah,
4: yeah, for sure. OK, well, let's pick up phone calls for if, if people are, if anybody's just tuning in, Congressman Ro Khanna, vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which had a major victory, is with us taking your calls in our Progressive National Town Hall meeting. And let's start with uh, Ed in Chicago. Ed, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna.
0: Well, let me uh, go along with congratulations
2: on passing that bill. It kind of goes into my question about, because hopefully the corporate media will will cover it, and give it the coverage it deserves. But my question is. What is the downside of Democratic politicians at this point in time, whenever they refer to Republicans, they start referring to them as the fascist Republicans? And I'm thinking if this offends some Republicans, and if it makes, it might be a way of breaking it into the corporate news, and if Democrats have to go on air on the corporate news to explain why they're calling these people fascist, I think that would be a good thing, and I think it would wake up the people who you need to reach, which is the people who don't even
0: know this program exists.
1: But first of all, thank you for the congratulations. I know we're doing something right if we've got Tom Hartman-Lister's calling to congratulate us, because usually they're appropriately challenging us to, to be more bold and progressive. You're absolutely right to be concerned about what I would say is the rise of uh, authoritarianism around this country. And instead of calling everyone uh, fascist or authoritarian, where you may lose independence or tune them out, I think we ought to be very specific about what's happening. It's a rise of authoritarianism when we have people trying to manipulate state laws So, that the state legislature or governor can determine the winner of a presidential election instead of the popular vote. And that is going on in state after state. It is a rise of authoritarianism when we're trying to throw off poor people or uh, poor black or poor uh, folks in communities of color off the voting rolls. Uh, And that is going on in states. It's a uh, authoritarian tactic when uh, the party is threatening that if you vote for a bipartisan infrastructure bill, you're going to be kicked off committees. So what I would say is you're absolutely right. We have to point out the dangers, but we should do that with very specific examples so that people say, yeah, this is this is wrong.
4: Nancy in Woodland, California, you're on the air with Congressman Connor.
3: Hi. um, Yeah, I just wanted to ask, um, you know, Gosar's video showed him attacking AOC and also on his way to attack Biden. And I'm just wondering why he wasn't actually expelled from Congress, why he was just censured
1: well uh, nancy it's a it 's a good point I mean censor is a pretty uh r- r- remarkable and an extraordinary uh, force uh, of congress and the the reason is that what he did was basically glorifying violence and uh, what he did was uh, uh, something that has no to- should have no toleration in any Uh, Any workplace. Uh, I think the concern about actually expelling is just whether you want to deny a constituency uh, their entire voice and representation, which is a very serious thing, uh, or whether you want to expose what happened, censor that, uh, deprive them of committees, and then have the electoral process play out uh, in 2022.
4: Nancy in Chewella, Washington. If I'm mispronouncing that, Nancy, f- fix that for me. And you're on the air with uh, Representative Connor. Thank think you. Think
5: of a dog catching a car and chewing on the wheel. Okay. <laughs> okay.
4: So. So,
5: so my way. question is, um, you have big homeless problem. Why isn't there something in housing to make to bring back the weekly, uh, the rooming houses that rent by the week? Uh, it's much easier to get up a week's worth of rent or even two weeks worth than two months worth of rent and that would take a lot
4: of homeless people off the street what we used to call sros i think
1: yeah, yeah so yeah so there is 150 billion in in housing funding uh that the sta- that'll go largely to the states that they will have some discretion in what they want to do with it. Uh, and, I, you know, there's so much in this bill, I didn't mention that up, up front. But my guess is that states would have the flexibility to design or allocate some of that funding uh, for that purpose uh, if, if, they, if they thought it was the most effective. Uh, but there's $150 billion in the bill that will go, particularly on housing and, and homelessness issues.
4: That is not inconsequential. That, that's, that's huge. Ed, in Belfair, you are on the air with Representative Conant.
6: Hello, Tom. Hello, Representative Khanna. I'd first like to thank your staff, your bride, and you, Tom, for a great
1: program. Representative Khanna, I wanted to know what you, your thoughts are. I watched three hours of uh, Representative McCarthy speaking. He didn't offer one thing for we the people. He just complained, complained. It's like he regurgitated over and over and over, trying to convince himself that he was you know, trying to be honest or truthful. I just wanted to get your input on that. Thank you. And Thank you, Representative Connor, for all the great work you do,
4: Congressman. Well, thank I, could, you. I, if, I, if I could toss an addendum uh, to that question, I'm I'm reading that uh, right now. Kevin McCarthy is most concerned th- about this movement to put Donald Trump as Speaker of the House if the Republicans take back the House, you know, in uh, January of next year. And do you think that he's he was campaigning last night?
1: I do. I don't think he was speaking to the American public. I think he was speaking to the 200 or so members of his own caucus. Uh, The concern is that not just that whether Donald Trump would become Speaker of the House, uh, which Mark Meadows has publicly floated uh, and others have publicly floated, uh, if, if the Republicans were to win, uh, he's also concerned that if it weren't, if Trump supports anyone else, because of, remember, McCarthy was somewhat critical of uh, what happened on January 6th before he walked that back. And, and if Trump holds that against him and supports anyone else, uh, then even if it's not Trump, it could be Scalise or some other alternative. And so McCarthy was speaking uh, to his uh his supporters or to his caucus trying to to get them uh to to see him as a leader and i agree with with uh, the gentleman's point that he didn't under, address any of the specifics i mean he talked about china he talked about taxes but did you ever hear him say well i am opposed to uh, american families getting paid leave or i am opposed to american families getting child care or i don't think every kid in this country should go to preschool of course he didn't because he knows those policies are popular so what i want to hear is from the republicans is what policies specific policies are they opposed to in this bill
4: yeah yeah it's uh, it, it's gonna be an interesting one by the way the breaking news kyle rittenhouse was just found not guilty on all charges
1: oh my yeah it is is going to be be an interesting uh, day
4: yes uh congressman roe connor vice chair of the congressional progressive caucus is with us for the hour in a progressive progressive national town hall meeting here on the tom hartman program we'll be back with your calls for congressman connor in just a moment stick around This is the Tom Hartman Program. Representative Kana's uh, Twitter handle is Rep ro Kana, K H A N N A, his website, Kana, khann A.house.com. And welcome back. Joe and Cupertino. <laughs> you are on the air with your <laughs> congressman. Your weekly conversation, happy, I
3: think. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Tom, and your staff, and enjoy the holiday while you can. Uh, Congressman, I'm very proud of what you did. I'm really proud of the caucus. I think that that's great that you've moved us to the Senate, where it's going to lavish before the election. It's not going to occur before the election. I don't believe we can pass that. I think what we got to do now is pivot to getting people's voting rights. If we don't win or continue to maintain the House and take the Senate, we're not going to be able to move what you just approved and i think that if we could help in any way with josh harding in our district up here in california maybe go after devin nunez he's a vulnerable and nationwide turn this uh, positive vote into a movement but we can take into the 2022 election that being said i'm sorry that breaking news uh, my question changes down because i want to know if you think it's a federal violation of their civil rights those two men that were killed but we can take this young man off of the streets. I think that that federal intervention is necessary if they're going to let this man free. He's obviously a threat. What do you think?
1: Well, Joe, I, I obviously uh, just hearing about the verdict and uh, my first thought is uh, what are the, the, the consequences for uh, the, the, the families of those who, who were uh, killed and uh the impact on our country uh, before saying what we should do next, I want to hear from our, our attorney general and and the justice department and see what the what the legal options are so i don 't want to uh, uh, pine on that until I have a, a chance to to study all the options yeah. in terms of uh, your uh, point, though, in the midterms, it's critical because half these things the Republicans will not extend or they will not continue uh, if, if, uh, uh, if we don't win. And what we need to do in the 2022 election is say, do you want the 300 bucks for your uh, family per month for your kids continuing or do you not? And that is a stark choice. And policy after policy, explain what we're delivering and what would go away if the Republicans win.
4: John in Cashmere, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. We have about a minute to the break, John, if you can make it quick.
1: Oh boy, that's gonna be tight. Okay. Um,
0: my comments are about Facebook. Um, I'm a musician and a, a computer tech. A while back I posted a um, a video from a live performance from a number of years back that Facebook's system automatically flagged uh the break music in there as being uh commercial music. And I find it kind of interesting that They can automatically flag music, but they can't automatically flag some of the lies and uh, memes and that sort of thing. Um, I I would like to know that if Congress can uh, do something to uh, pressure Facebook to start uh, removing that kind of material, which I think was so uh, divisive the last uh, several years. That's basically my question.
7: Thank you, I I
1: appreciate it, and I uh, agree with you that... uh, uh, Facebook can be doing a lot, uh, lot more. Let me give you two very quick examples. First of all, with, on Instagram, where they're basically uh, having a product that is causing depression, anxiety, and suicidal th- thoughts in teenagers, particularly teenager girl, teenage girls. I mean, that's just wrong under consumer uh, safety and consumer product laws, and they ought to uh, have a consequence for that. Uh, and then, in terms of the incitement of violence on their platforms, that is not protected speech and that ought to come down. Amen.
4: Quick math, the less your business spends on operations on multiple systems on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to NetSuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. Welcome back. Uh, John in Boise, Idaho, you are on the air with Representative Connor.
7: Yes, sir. I have a question. First, I want to start with, we have put so much energy into the COVID-19 problem. We have mandated vaccines in some areas. We have been mandating masks. We have also now been, have, you have to have a card to prove you've been vaccinated. So my question is, why can't we put the same energy into making sure that people, before they buy weapons, have a license? And, and we also can have legislation in where they would need to be tested. First of all, have maybe writing a, a written exam of why they want to carry. And number two, having a shooting proficiency test, being fingerprinted, and undergoing maybe at least six to maybe ten hours of training before they get the license. Because this week, this past week, children have been shot. People have been shot. This has been going on forever, and no legislation has been passed. No energy has been put into it like COVID-19. And I'm wondering why. Do you have an answer for that? Michael
1: uh, you are raise a very fair point that the uh, mobilization we saw to protect lives under covid we haven't seen that on uh, gun violence uh, in my 5 years in congress we barely passed anything uh, and we need to uh, as as tom has written have a liability at the very least for uh, gun related Uh, incidents. I think that would provide an extraordinary incentive. We need to make sure that people who are getting these firearms uh, are competent to to be able to use them and uh, aren't uh, a danger to to society or to themselves. Uh, And a lot of the universal background checks would would do that. Uh, We ought to be limiting magazine clips, banning uh, some of these uh, uh, assault rifles, banning these assault rifles and militarized weapons. So uh, the House has done a lot of that. Uh, The challenge has been the Senate.
4: Sean in Davenport, Iowa, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
2: Hey,
1: uh,
8: thank you for taking my call. Um, Question about 2022, everybody knows it's a midterm year, and everybody knows the um, maps and the districts are being redrawn because of the census. We have got to fight hard next year to sign that For the People Act into law. What are your thoughts?
1: We absolutely do. We have to do this in uh, January at the latest. And uh, the president said he wants to get his economic agenda through. We're going to get it through. Now we have to pass the For the People Act for two reasons. One, so we can have independent state redistricting. Otherwise, you have basically unilateral disarmament. States like mine, California, if we gerrymandered it, we could pick up four Republican seats. We're not. That's a good reason, a good thing for good governance. And we have an independent commission. But all the Republican states, they're gerrymandering. So, how can you win in that? that situation uh, when one side is gerrymandering and the other side is not. So we need to fix that and we need to fix voting rights so everyone in this country who's eligible can vote.
4: Joe in Minneapolis. Hey, Joe, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna.
6: Hi, thanks, Tom. Thanks, Congressman Khanna. I've, I'm really concerned about Republican states sort of creating channels to decertify valid elections and install their own candidates. A lot of the mainstream media talk about this, you know, the voting issues state by state are, you know, is mail valid? Can they send mail? Can you have water? And all that stuff is important, but not as important as the fact that it doesn't matter what happens if Republicans have the opportunity to decertify and install their own candidates. And I'd suggest the term decertify and install, I look at it as almost like CRT became an evil marketing Method, uh, an easy to understand thing, decertify and install really describes what they're trying to do. Is there a way that if we can't stop states from doing that, decertifying and installing, can there be something that the federal government could put in that would provide a, or require a burden of proof before an election could be overturned?
1: Yeah, Joe, the, you're 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 absolutely right to be concerned. I'm concerned too. I'm particularly concerned about the states, uh, as you put it, decertifying and. Installing uh, at the uh, presidential level and what it means, you know, if uh, President Biden carries a state by five, ten points, but you have uh, the state legislature certify uh, the losing candidate. I mean, that is a real concern. Uh, The Congress could act and make the Electoral Count Act clearer about uh, who gets to certify these state elections. The challenge is that would require overcoming the filibuster. Even if we passed it in the House, it will not pass the Senate. Uh, without 60 votes. And so it, that's why I believe on some of these democracy reforms, we have to be willing to do it without the filibuster.
4: Hey, let's try Robert in Phoenix. Robert, you are on the air with Representative Connor.
1: Yeah, hi, sir.
2: I'd like to talk about the gun issue a little bit again. Seems to me, you know, I got guns, I like guns. Guns are great, they're fun. But these guns are, while we have the mass shooting incidences and they're horrible and tragic, a lot of this is just guns ending up on the streets why are people that buy guns license them why don't they have to produce them once a year and show i still have it i know what happened or i know what happened to it
4: you mean just like you do with somebody, your car
2: and here's the exactly
4: yeah you know oh, i'm sorry i'm sorry robert i thought you were done congressman
1: well i think these are common sense reforms. you can believe that uh Uh, in the second amendment and people have the right to bear arms but you could also believe that there need to be universal background checks that there needs to be some standards of safety uh, and that if you don't have your gun in a place of safety or in a way that is uh, uh, appropriate then that there's liability for that Uh, and i think all of that is uh, about responsible gun ownership and 99 percent of gun owners are responsible and they should welcome that because they would comply
4: Bob in Ithaca, New York, here on the air with Representative Connor.
6: Thank you. Uh, my question to you, sir, is uh, what do you say to people like myself that believe the Build Back Better infrastructure bill that was just passed was not enough to address climate change and other issues?
1: So, Bob, there are two bills. There was the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, but I assume you're talking about the bill we just passed today, Build Back Better which had about $550 billion, uh, for climate. And if you say it's not enough, I agree with you. I mean, it's not enough. Uh, it's going to require executive orders as well. It's going to require states. I would have liked there to be more investment. I would have liked there to be the clean electricity program. Uh, but this was uh, the best we could get uh, with the slim majorities. And it is the most significant step that the country has ever taken on climate. So I would say it's a a strong first step, but you're right to caution uh, that uh, it's not time to celebrate. The the work must continue.
4: Paul in Chicago, you're on the air with Representative Connor.
7: Hi, uh, Congressman. My question is this simply. Could you tell me when was the last time that a Republican introduced a piece of
6: legislation specifically designed to help the average American working family. When was the last time they did that?
1: Well, Paul, I know you, Tom has had a version of this question and always stumps me because I can't. Uh, Eighteen uh, years. Think of one.
4: <laughs> Eighteen years I've been running this contest on this show.
1: You know, so I uh, I can't think of one. I mean, they've got the rhetoric down, but when it comes to actually supporting something that's going to make the economic life of the working class or middle class better, uh, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. I mean, I, I'm uh, open to your suggestions.
4: Dan in Phoenix, Arizona, you're on the air with Representative Khanna.
7: Yes, Representative Khanna. Uh, here in Arizona, we have an independent redistricting, which I think is a very good thing. And I know California does too, but could California somehow override theirs? uh so that they could kind of enter the, the gerrymandering battle like the <laughs> Republicans are kind of going nuts on cuz they say hey we have we'll have two different uh maps well here's here's your your map if uh if they pass that gerrymandering federal law and here's the map with the independent redistricting law and and you know go accordingly
1: I hear your frustration because it's unilateral disarmament. I mean, in California, we could win probably four to five uh, uh, Republican seats if we gerrymandered, Uh, and instead we may end up losing a seat because uh, California is losing a seat and that is likely to be a Democratic seat. The the challenge is in our state, the people voted for it. So, you know, the legislature, politicians can't do anything. We can't override the the people's will. Uh, But you really are pointing to a structural problem where the states that are blue basically all voted for, many of them voted for good governance, and the Republican states are gerrymandering. And the fix to that is a federal law requiring independent commissions.
4: And that's that's in uh, uh, at least the For the People Act, is it not?
1: That's in the For the People Act. That the it, it, The Independent Commissions and the Voting Rights Act are the two most important things we can do for our democracy, and if you care about 2022.
4: Amen. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Ro Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. It's by Vince Houghton. This is from the introduction. This is a book about desperation. That word has been so overused and misused that it's lost much of its impact. Too many stories about some local sports team desperate for a win or some housewives desperate for whatever that show is about. These pretenders have trivialized a word designed to be used only in the most extraordinary of circumstances. It should be a powerful word reserved for the urgent and overwhelming feeling that one's life is at risk. It's for the truly existential threats, another misused word, to one's country, one's family, one's friends, or one's livelihood. To feel desperate is to believe there are no good options, that everything that has been tried or could be tried is destined for failure. Desperation leads us to consider ideas that would have been unfathomable under normal circumstances, because desperate people make desperate decisions. This is also a book about innovation. Creative thinking about how things work and the possibilities of how things could work has been the catalyst for the astonishingly dynamic technological transformation of the past hundred years. From the advent of lighter than air flight to hypersonic aircraft, from bolt action rifles to electromagnetic railguns, from ENIAC to quantum computing, from one poor freezing soldier in a trench listening to intercepted wireless messages, to the NSA's supercomputers collecting the metadata of billions. Brilliant people with innovative ideas continue to shape our world and do it exponentially faster than the generations that came before. But when innovation and desperation meet, trouble will usually follow. If necessity is the mother of invention, desperation is the drunk uncle. The guy who only calls twice a year at 3 a.m. on your birthday with the greatest idea anyone has ever had. No matter how hard you argue against the logic of his narrative, no matter how many flaws you find in his reasoning, he's resolute. This will work. It has to, he's a desperate man. Every so often, we're surprised when one of these ideas actually pans out. The U-2 and SR-71 spy planes, some of the most innovative aircraft ever designed, were the result of American desperation to see inside the Soviet Union. Nuclear power, computers, the internet, modern textiles, personal encryption, even the process of how some of our food is grown, were born out of the nation's desperate fear to keep pace with an imposing rival. Much of that history has been written before. Countless books have been published about the remarkable and successful technology developed over the last century by governments for national security needs. This is not one of them. Most history books are full of stories that happened. This is a history book full of stories behind things that didn't happen. Here, we'll take an expansive look at projects, missions, operations, and technology that were seriously considered, but didn't make the grade. Some were ultimately deemed too risky, expensive, dangerous, ahead of their time, were even certifiably insane. Others were canceled mostly because they were overtaken by events. The atomic bomb worked, the war ended, the plans were captured, other technology superseded. Generally, history books use events of the past to make powerful arguments about historical actors' motivations, personalities, and states of mind, and rightfully so. This is part of what history books are supposed to do. But I contend that the evaluation of historical events is not enough. It can be just as important to investigate policies decisions and technologies that were considered at the highest levels but then nixed for a variety of reasons the intent of historical actors can be and i argue is far more instructive and illuminating than focusing entirely on the outcome of their policies outcome history is the traditional way of viewing historical events but it leaves much to be desired it has severe limitations primarily because its lessons are predicated on things that can't be accurately quantified fate, luck, misfortune, whatever you want to call it. If the D-Day invasion in Normandy had failed because of a freak weather system, or a lucky shot from a German soldier that took out a key American leader on the beach, or any number of other misfortunate scenarios, would we think any less of Eisenhower's plan? Using outcome-based history, the answer is yes. And therein lies the problem. Intent can be a very powerful tool for historians. So leave your historical hindsight at the door. Ignore the fact that these policies, technologies, programs, and missions were scrapped before they became real. To get the most out of this book, you should take the advice of Master Yoda. You must unlearn what you have learned. The outcomes of the programs are inconsequential to the overall message of the narrative. Outcome really doesn't matter here at all. That's why this book scorns the counterfactual, the game of what if, vilifies it, mocks it mercilessly. The counterfactual is our enemy. We will not what-if ourselves until we are blue in our faces trying to rewrite history into a hodgepodge of ahistorical nonsense. Deep breath. I might have taken that a little too far. Counterfactuals can be a lot of fun when you're hanging out with your friends and family debating the what-ifs of the Kennedy assassination of the Civil War, or the Protestant Reformation, or the Star Wars prequels, or the 1986 World Series. I forgive you, Bill Buckner, mostly. I'd be happy to join you all one day for a vigorous debate on historical counterfactuals, perhaps over your favorite adult beverage or bottle of yoo but they have no place here. Instead, all of these stories should have you saying, what were they thinking? The best way to approach this book is with an open mind toward the decision-makers and how they were approaching the problems facing them. In almost every case, those in power were desperate to do something, anything, to combat their adversaries. Thus, what were they thinking is exactly correct. Except I hope you'll be willing to truly embrace the question and not just see it as the dismissive aside or a hasty pejorative. Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes are book for the day.
7: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
4: And welcome back, Gary in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Gary, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Good morning, sir. Thank you for taking my
0: call. Budget question. At a time, well, first of all, go Niners. Now budget question. (laughs) At a time time when we cannot get Medicare for all, we cannot uh, relieve student loan debt, what exactly is Space Force? What is the mission? Who are their designated foes, real or imaginary? And how much is this costing me? So Space Force, question mark.
1: Well, I, I agree with you more broadly on the bloated defense budget, which at $750 billion is more than it was at the height of the Cold War under President Reagan. You know, Space Force, they say, is to compete with China, but it's unclear the specificity of all of that. And we still have a fund for overseas wars. So it's important to realize $750 billion for defense and less than $200 billion is the Build Back Better plan per year. And we ought to be investing more in improving people's lives instead of uh, the bloated defense budget at a time we're pulling out of overseas wars
4: philip in seattle you're on the air with representative connor
6: hey thank you tom for all you do and congressman i have an idea and i don't know if it would work or not but for the uh build back better bill that just passed the two of them if we were to post a billboard in the major red states and in the cities that would show who voted for it and who didn't in reference to the Democratic uh, Congress people that voted for it, and to make sure that the Republicans can't pretend like they voted for this bill after the fact.
1: I think it's a good idea, and I think simple messaging on billboards about what's in the bill. Here's what you're going to get. And it'd be great if every Democrat could find three things and we could all be saying the same thing. I mean, I know that that's not our strength as a Democratic Party, but we've done so many good things here. But I think picking two or three things and repeating it so that it, it, it sticks is critical.
4: Jeff, in Portland, you are on the air with Representative Connor.
9: Hey, good day, Tom and, and Reverend O'Connor. Thank you both for all you do. Um, you know, Common Dreams had a good piece, talking uh, titled "New Report on Grocery Cartels D- Details Exploitive Retailer Monopolies," and that was from this Monday. And it, it's uh, you know a timely piece because you know we're approaching Thanksgiving, and rising food prices are in the news. Besides calling for the breaking up of monopolies in our food system. It also calls for a need for more grocery co-ops. So my question, Congressman Khanna, A, would you please look into this report and see what you can do legislatively to address some of the issues raised? And B, there's a program in about 28 states titled, I mean, called Double Up Bucks, which uh, allows people with SNAP benefits to get twice their purchasing power at farmers markets and food co-ops. Uh, could you look into the possibility of enhancing and expanding this program, maybe to all 50 states? Thank you both for your- all your efforts thank you congressman connor thanks jeff
1: jeff those are great suggestions uh, i wasn't familiar with this doubling up program for the farmer's market i will look into that and see if we can support that more but especially at this time where we've seen uh, inflation of food prices uh, and we'll look into the uh, uh, price gouging as well and the monopolization of the that, that industry
4: Representative Ro Khanna, Vice Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, representing the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. Khanna.House.gov, you can tweet him at Rep. Khanna. A.J. in Eureka, California, you are on the air with Congressman Khanna.
7: Good morning, and thank you guys for everything you're doing here. And I have a question about another thing that's going on in the Congress right now, which is to undo some of the changes that the previous administration did to the National Environmental Policy Act and the EIS process, that, as you know, governs a lot of stuff like offshore oil and wind power and all the stuff that's going on now that requires that kind of analysis. And I don't know what committee is doing it, but I know that the comments are due by the 22nd, and uh, I've been involved in the process for a while. I'd like to know who's doing what. What's the the latest on that? Can you provide Uh info?
1: Hi, Tom. I, for some reason, the first part of the question got cut off. Oh, he was uh, talking about the
4: National Environmental Policy Review or uh, Act, NEPA?
1: Okay. I think this is a uh, the review of uh, the president looking at how the impacts are on the on communities of color and, and, and vulnerable communities. I don't know if that's what he's referring to, but if that's what he is referring to, the Oversight Committee is committed to making sure that we are having the mitigation of climate impact on communities of color. And my Committee on Environment will be leading a number of hearings on what the impact is on the most vulnerable communities.
4: Brilliant. Lance in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Connor.
7: Hi, Tom. Hi, gentlemen. Senator, um, it seems like the Democrats are having a messaging problem. And the two examples I've noticed on the evening news uh they're showing commercials saying that the government if it gets involved in prescription medicine they're showing an older lady maybe in her 50s 60s and she's putting down saying the government it will be terrible and how it affects them and the other uh commercial they're showing is how the, if the government gets involved in the tech industry it's going to stifle that business and i don't see any pushback or not a lot of pushback on T V. Do you do you have any information on that? If the government gets
1: involved in tech I think the question is what is the role for government in getting involved in uh, crypto or tech and how can we do so in a way that has sensible regulation and my view is that so far these uh, industries have been unregulated and they've been allowed to uh, is t- take people's data without consent they've been allowed to have avoid taxes and what well, we need is smart well-crafted regulation so that they're playing by the same rules and that won't stifle innovation but it, it depends on how we have the the regulations every industry is regulated and tech should be no exception
4: Susan in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Connor.
5: Hi, Tom and Representative Connor. Thanks for taking my call. I'm calling about the um, the bill that has been put forward by Senator Murray, and I think you support it in the House for the uh, permanent daylight savings. I'm concerned about yes. that because I feel i am concerned two reasons. One, I feel like there's an eagerness to have bipartisanship, and this seems like an easy thing to agree on. But I'm also concerned because the evidence from peer-reviewed studies says that permanent uh, standard time would be better for us, not daylight savings. And we tried it in the 70s. I remember it. No one liked it. And then they just did it in Russia, and people were pretty miserable and ill with it. So they abandoned it. So I don't understand, one, why this is happening. But so, I mean, it is, if it is going forward, I would like to ask that you have studies, have some uh, we're not studies, but whatever you call the hearings, where you would um, bring in some experts who would testify on the advantage to health of permanent uh, standard time over daylight savings time, which is a social construct and they think would cause uh, like an a- endless kind of jet lag, mm. which we could never get out of. Thank you,
1: Susan. Susan, I agree with you, and this is why we've brought the bill, and I agree with you on having hearings and listening to the experts and, and having the science and medical opinion determine this and not some industry consideration. So my hope is that we can have hearings next year.
4: And, and as a resident of the northern latitudes here, let me put in my vote for permanent standard time as opposed to permanent daylight time. <laughs> Otherwise, we would, you know, we'd be getting up in the dark and going to work in the dark. And any, anyhow, we have forty seconds left, Congressman. So really, not enough time to put a questioner on. Anything you want to point us to as the uh, in the coming
1: weeks? Well, I would just say if we take. Uh view of what we've accomplished before this Thanksgiving, I mean, the president has had the American Rescue Plan, $2 trillion of aid with direct checks to, to working class, middle class families, reducing child poverty in a dramatic way. We've passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill of rural broadband, of investments in uh, getting rid of lead pipes, of massive investments in, in public transport. And now we're going to have universal child care, universal preschool and massive investments in climate. So uh, I do think uh, the progressives uh, have had uh, quite an impact on policy and this president has done quite a good job.
6: You
4: guys have delivered. You have so delivered, I I tip my hat to you. Let's hope we can get it through the Senate. Thank you, Congressman.
1: Thank you, Tom. Happy Thanksgiving.
4: Thank you. Back at you And, and, and our best to your family. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. Kyle Rittenhouse not guilty on all charges. Ouch. One other thing I wanted to just bring up, and I'll do it uh, relatively quickly here, given everything that's going on, and I know that you know, a, lot of us, a lot of folks would like to just come on and talk about the news of the day, um, but I had uh, teased it, as it were. You know, I mentioned it at the beginning of the show uh, that uh, you know, I think that we've figured out now what Joe Manchin might have gotten in exchange for uh, supporting, assuming that this happens, certainly supporting the, the BIF, the by the so-called bipartisan infrastructure uh, uh framework but also the uh the bill back better bill. And uh that has to do with uh, a young man by the name of Brad Crabtree. Uh this this came out of apparently a meeting between Joe Manchin and uh, President Joe Biden. Uh, Crabtree is uh a, he's from uh, North Dakota. He started the Great Plains Institute back in 2002 uh, to on on behalf of the big oil companies push and the and in his state coal big big coal lignite coal uh, to push the idea that uh, the government needs to be subsidizing these companies in developing carbon capture and storage technology to 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 take carbon out of the air now just you know for the record uh, with the with the single exception of this plant that's operating in Iceland that's running off volcanic power nowhere on earth has carbon capture and storage been demonstrated to work because it requires so much energy to pull the carbon out of the out of the atmosphere and store it that you have to use more energy producing more carbon to get it than you get if you if you understand what i'm saying uh, but the but the utility companies have made uh... you know substantial uh... donations to politicians who are promoting this idea that the federal government should be subsidizing now. Uh, let me just say, if we can effectively decarbonize the atmosphere, I'm all in favor of that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be funding this kind of research. But I think that we need to go into it eyes wide open, realizing that this is the Hail Mary for the fossil fuel industry. And uh, this over at the dailyposter.com, uh, David Srotus uh, uh, article or website, this one is actually by Walter Bragman and Julia Rock, who work uh, you know on the Daily Poster. Uh, they, they note this, and they talk about Brad Crabtree, and then they say the Wall Street-friendly think tank Third Way was elated at the news that Crabtree would be taking a prominent position within the Biden administration. And that's, that's what I think Joe Manchin got out of this. He's now in charge of uh, the clean electricity, uh, excuse me, he's now in charge of, uh, where did it go? He will be the Department of Energy's Assistant Secretary for Fossil Energy and Carbon Management. So, uh, you know, Crabtree has served as an advisor to the National Coal Council since 2014. He's vice president for fossil energy at the Great Plains Institute, an opaque pro-fossil fuel group that has been lobbying in D.C. for funding carbon capture technology. Crabtree is also the director of the D.C.-based Carbon Capture Coalition, whose members include fossil fuel companies like Shell, NRG Energy, and Valero, and incidentally, The Third Way, which is this, you know, group that uh, came out of Wall Street, that, that sponsors or, or helped create the so-called corporate problem solvers caucus in, in the House and Senate. Uh, utility companies have made substantial donations to the third way just between 2015 and 2019. Entergy gave them a, a $125,000 uh, to the third way. Public Service Enterprise Group gave them $50,000. PG&E $175,000. Um, and Congress had set aside in the bipartisan, in the BIF, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, eight and a half billion dollars to to fund this, uh, you know, to subsidize and fund uh, this uh, carbon capture and sequestration. So, you know, we'll see where this goes. I, like I said, I'm, I, I don't think this is outrageous. I think this is kind of falls into the category of this is the sausage being made. And you get to see, you know, OK, you know, uh, Joe Manchin wanted something. Joe Biden wanted something. Um, you know, Manchin got something relatively small, you know, eight billion bucks for a for a subsidy for the fossil fuel industry uh joe Manch- joe uh, biden president biden gets something really big um you know the his you know, mansion's vote on this thing on the on the so-called BIF. we'll see how it shakes out but anyhow that's that's my uh my take on that
9: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are
7: helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
4: So let's pick up some of your phone calls. And uh, there's actually a lot to talk about today, in addition to the Rittenhouse uh, verdict. So, Ted in Des Moines, Washington. Hey, Ted, what's up?
0: Uh, good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Thank you for all your hard work. I want to talk about the time zone and and everybody, this big desire, or big push to change the time zone now. and it, I just I just cringe. It just seems you
4: know. Uh, your your phone is breaking sorry. up, Ted. All right, so there, there's three options. One is to keep things as they are. Right. The other is to go with nationwide daylight savings time. The third is to go with nationwide standard time. Which of those three are you voting for, Ted?
0: It should be standard time.
4: I agree. Uh, people
2: don't understand. That's what the whole point. that's standard.
4: Yeah, Ted. I'm sorry, your phone is just breaking up terribly. We, uh, it doesn't, you know. But Uh-oh. good to get your vo- vote there. Val in Fresno, California. Hey, Val, what's up?
2: Love your show, Tom, and uh, pleasure to talk to you. I just wanted to mention, like, I feel like is this a new norm now in the U.S. You could defend yourself, get you attacked, you could kill somebody, and and that's acceptable form of self-defense. I have a problem with that, <laughs> and um, I understand. Kyle House is kind of uh, attacked in some of these cases, but still, like, I just, I couldn't do it. And I just hopefully, he, um, you know, he doesn't go in that direction. He changes directions and maybe... Uh,
4: I think he's a very, very badly damaged uh, sociopath. <laughs> that's, that's, oh. that's my take on yeah, it. I mean, somebody I who really goes to that. a riot with an AR-15 and then kills, right. two, tries to kill three people, succeeds in killing two of them, that's not a normal person.
2: That's correct. Yes, maybe I shouldn't hold my breath on him doing anything, speak out against gun violence or anything. Yeah, he's no. probably happy, but it's
4: like... No, and, and he's raised over a half a million bucks from right-wingers who support him and love him.
2: I know, I can't believe there's people caring for this. This is crazy. So I just wanted to hear what you're saying. What if we have to defend him with guns? But it's three people I know, it's okay. Oh, yeah, good. If somebody yeah. could attack me, I would have shot him like Zimmerman. Yeah, baby. no,
4: it's... You, it's like, you know. I don't, I don't, I, Self-defense has been used as a defense in killing people for a long, long time, Val. I agree with you in disagreeing with this verdict, but, uh, you know, you're not going to do away with that. Our book today is Taking Bullets, Terrorism and Black Life in 21st Century America, Confronting White Nationalism, Supremacy, Privilege, Plutocracy, and Oligarchy, A Poet's Representation and Challenge by Haki R. Madhuburi. This is from page 27, the chapter, Terror in the Midst of Prayer and Empire. He writes, In our perpetual state of national mourning, where our eyes are watered out and our hearts cease to heal at the rate the Creator meant them to, we hold hands in profound silence as we remember the Mother Emmanuel nine of Charleston, South Carolina, those nine mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers. Even before burying, before black earth covered their caskets, too many ministers, media pundits, and plain white and black folks downgraded the terror that quickened their deaths of our finest in this land to the mental illness and race hatred in quotes, of a single young white man. He may have acted alone, but he was not alone in his thinking, encouragement, gathering of arms, warped consciousness, confirmation, or ahistorical views and yeses from the millions in the nation who proudly wear and display the Confederate flag above their hearts, and fly it in all of its traitorous glory over a state capital and other institutions. Again, we find ourselves at war with history and culture, entertaining another call for a national conversation on race, and a president weary of trying to make sense of and comfort the grief-stricken nation with words from the highest office of the land was written while Obama was president. These are the facts, not an opinion or the ignorant ranting of compromised preachers and television pundits. A 21-year-old white man, a citizen of South Carolina, walked into the sacred and spiritual home of the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church of Charleston, the historic home of black liberation fighter Denmark Vesey, and fatally killed nine of its members, including the pastor, during Bible study. This was a pure act of domestic terrorism, a modern-day lynching by a young white nationalist who coolly and calmly assassinated nine black members of Mother Emanuel. Domestic violence and acts of terrorism are on the rise in the United States, as detailed by Charles Kurzman and Daniel Schanzer in their New York Times op-ed, The Other Threat, where they state that, quote, the main terrorist threat in the United States is not from violent Muslim extremists, but from right-wing extremists, end quote. In their national research, local police agencies across the country identified, quote, the militias, neo-Nazis, and sovereign citizens as the major threat the nation faces in regard to extremism, end quote. All of this is homegrown with international connections. Morris Dees and J. Richard Cohen of the Southern Poverty Law Center also writes in the New York Times article Racists Without Borders that, quote, Americans tend to view attacks like the mass murder in Charleston as isolated hate crimes, the work of a deranged racist or a group of zealots lashing out in anger unconnected to a broader movement. This view we can no longer afford to indulge. When, according to survivors, Mr. Roof told the victims at the prayer meeting that black people were, quote, taking over the country, he was expressing sentiments that unite white nationalists from the United States and Canada to Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Unlike those of the civil rights era, whose main goal was to maintain Jim Crow in the American South. Today's white supremacists don't see borders. They see a white tribe under attack by people of color across the globe. The end of white rule in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and South Africa, they believe, foreshadowed an apocalyptic future for all white people, a white genocide that must be stopped before it's too late. End of quote. The internationalization of terrorism is not a foreign theory in today's social media world. Dees and Cohen will be speaking at a conference in Budapest about this transnational white supremacism that is emerging as the world grows more connected technologically. The message of white genocide is spreading. Also, David J. Whitaker's terrorism, understanding the global threat, gives another view. Clearly, our rush to forgive this mass murderer within 96 hours of this supreme tragedy is misguided, anti-human, and does not allow for properly grieving the fallen. As perfectly scripted, displaying the permanent effectiveness of Christian acculturation on the Sunday, June 21, 2015, morning services of Mother Emanuel Church, the black Christians out-Christianed their white brothers and sisters. Before the morning sermon, the presiding elder, Reverend Norvell Goff, Sr., found it necessary to thank the local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies for doing their job. He also stated, quote, a lot of folks expected us to do something strange and break out in a riot. Well, they just don't know us. We are people of faith, end quote. I find this statement inappropriate, insensitive, and ahistorical, implying, whether he meant it or not, that the recent uprising and rebellions in Ferguson, New York, Cleveland, and other parts of the nation were riots and did not include black people of faith, and that somehow they were strange in their social, political, and economic activism. Informed people do not riot against injustice or white terrorism. They study, organize, and strategically struggle at all levels, in the streets, on the campus, in front of the White House, and in corporate boardrooms. Dylan Roof stated his intentions were to start a race war, and informed black leadership understands that we cannot pray this away or appeal to any law enforcement agency, that all across the country, including Charleston, has been seriously compromised. To label black reaction to murder, terrorism, deep unemployment, substandard housing, etc., as riot is to blame the victim the book, Taking Bullets. Donna in Round Mountain, California. Hey, Donna, what's on your mind today?
8: Well, I think we've effectively lost our right to go out and protest. But I'm Well, always- the other,
4: no, it's actually the other side has gained the right to kill you when you go out and protest.
8: Well, well okay, thanks. <laughs> you said that good. But what really gets me is I, I always make signs for protests, and I go to a lot of them. And I started going to McClintock's office in California, and I made great big signs with a big stick on it so you could get it up where people could see it. Mm-hmm. And I was told you're no longer allowed to put a stick on your signs because it could possibly be used as a weapon.
4: Yeah, I've, I've heard that in some places, that's actually a rule. I believe that's the case in Washington, D.C., or at least around the federal buildings.
8: Every si- every picture I've seen of us being able to protest, every one of them, I, I, I don't see sticks on their signs. Right. Anyway, I thought that was a little odd that the brown shirts or mega hats or whatever you want to call them have the right to carry an AR, but we can't have a stick on our sign.
4: Oh, that's anyway. a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't put it in that context. That's, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Donna, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for that. Woo. Jim and Ventura. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today?
0: I wanted to change the subject uh, real quick to the Kennedy assassination coming up on Monday the sure. anniversary of JFK.
4: Yeah, go for it.
0: And uh, I just, a real question for you, Tom, I just wanted to know if you ever noticed on the Zabruda film when uh, the limousine slows down for Agent Hill to hop on a board, did you ever notice that one of the brake lights is out? Did you ever notice I that?
4: I don't recall. You know, the guy... You know, Lamar and I wrote a couple of books on the Kennedy assassination. Yes, Lamar is really the, the he was the, the expert, as it were. And, you okay, Lamar, we'll, we'll well, well, I, I always wanted it.
0: to ask you that because I, I've never heard anybody say, I just thought what maybe would one be of the, the, significance the first of that, Jim? Hit, you know, took the taillight out or something.
4: Oh, interesting. So you think that the taillight was out? As a as a consequence of the yeah, shooting. Yeah,
0: I, I've I always looked at films before, see if they were braked on the on the ro- route to yeah. there, and I, the, I could never find any I, film of both brake lights before the, the the shooting.
4: Yeah, I have. You know, anyway, I just I, I, don't I don't remember. I've always wanted
0: to ask you that, sir. Yeah,
4: that was t- <laughs> it was 20 years ago, Jim. I'm sorry, I don't recall you know that particular detail, but you know it's it's, it's an interesting flag, Jim. Thank you for the call.